You have appointed or commanded your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am crushed and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us once again pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as uh, the psalmist here prays that uh, he might be given understanding, that that he might live, so also we pray the same. We ask that you would give us understanding, that you would illuminate us, and that we would come, even as the psalmist has done, to treasure and to love that word that you have given to us in our Bibles. Lord, we do pray your blessing upon our time this night as we hear your word. Apply it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ricardo uh, spoke to us last Sunday night about the verses that preceded And you might take note that uh, in verse 135, we read, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. There is a prayer for God's face to shine upon the servant of the Lord, that he might be taught. And the shining of God's face is that which he seeks, and where is he going to find the face of God? He's going to find the face of God in the statutes, in the law, and in the word of God. God's face shines upon us, and it enlightens us as we read and study and meditate upon the word. And notice that Life and light, or illumination, are closely linked together in this passage. Notice that the very last verse, 144, says, Give me understanding, that is light, that I may live. And so uh, the, the believer, and I think if, if we step back from this and we think about Psalm 119 as a whole, and we think about its purpose and why it is that God has given us this part of the Bible. It's almost as though God has given us and shined his light upon the relationship of the psalmist to the word in a multifaceted way, bringing to light various and different things, both in the experience of the one who reads the word 
and in the word itself, those traits that are in the word that are a benefit to him in his experience. What a great benefit it is for us, therefore, to do the same thing as we make our way through Psalm 119, and to examine our own hearts in relation to this word that we have. Are we relating to it? Are we seeing it? as the psalmist sees it, and are we relating to it as the psalmist relates to it? So when we read and meditate upon the word of God, one of the things that we learned last Sunday night was that the Lord shines upon us his face, and it is the face of blessing. It is the thing that gives us life. It is the word of God that, in a sense, mediates for us the very face of God. So the Lord, uh, the psalmist prayed in the previous section that God would shine his face upon him. And it is as though in the verses that are before us tonight, verses 137 and following, that the psalmist is confessing that God has indeed done that. He has shined upon his mind and heart some great truth about God. And the great truth that God has revealed to the psalmist is the truth about his righteousness. Righteous are you. The Lord has answered his prayer. He's given him understanding. And the psalmist is now focused on one thing in this section, the righteousness of God. And the righteousness, therefore, of all the words that come from him. The word righteous occurs five times in verses 137 through 144, and there's no question that that is the dominant thought of the psalmist. And so if we think about it in this way, that the psalmist has prayed for illumination, prayed for the face of God to shine upon him, what does he see when he looks upon the face of God? It is the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is incredibly important. It's important for us and our own culture in which we live because we live in a culture of vying claims to justice. Justice is very ill-founded. Everyone is looking for it, but no one can find it. But justice can only be found, and righteousness is only to be found, not in that which is derived from man, but in that which comes to us by the one who created us, our creator, the Lord God, who has revealed himself to Israel, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He alone is righteous. He alone is just. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, in the Song of Moses, uh, Moses says this, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is the great truth that the psalmist is thinking about, that the justice of God, the righteousness of God, 
has been revealed to him. And this was important uh, not only as a revelation of the character of God, but it was to be displayed in Israelite life. Israelites had uh, uh, a right when they stood before the bar of justice that that law would be applied to them. The law of God would be applied to them without regard to status or wealth. And so the judges of Israel were to rule in righteousness. They were to rule in justice and righteousness. God said in Leviticus 19, You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And when Jehoshaphat reinstituted the judges of Israel, he said, Now then, fear, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking of bribes. So the lesson of our psalm, of the verses that are before us, is this. That God's righteousness is the source of great strength and consolation of the believer. God's righteousness is the source of great strength and consolation of the believer. And I want to look at the verses that are before us and to see, first of all, what, those, what, the, what aspects of righteousness come to light in the meditation upon it. And then secondly, that response which the psalmist has to the righteousness of God in his word. So first, the aspects of righteousness as the psalmist meditates upon the righteousness of God. And the first thing that we see is in verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Righteousness is a part of the very essence and the character of God. There is, no, there is nothing crooked. There is nothing deviant. God himself is perfectly just and righteous in his character and in his being. Now, when we think of righteousness, we usually think of it in terms of strict adherence to a standard. Now, there's no standard, there's no law above God to which he must strictly adhere. But he, what he does is he acts always in perfect consistency with his essence and his nature. And God himself is righteous in himself. And he is not only righteous in his being, But all that he does is righteous and just and good. He acts in perfect rectitude toward his creation. And everything conforming to his will is that which is done in perfect righteousness. So we see the first aspect of righteousness is that it is in God himself that righteousness is to be found not in man there's no claim in the psalmist that he is righteous but God is righteous that's important 
But the second aspect is we see that it is manifested, righteousness is manifested and it is seen. And it is manifested, first of all, in God's providence. Notice in verse 138, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all uh, righteousness. Actually, I meant to call your attention to verse 137 again. Here it says, righteous or right or upright are all your judgments. Are all your judgments. I, I like that translation of the NASB better um, than rules here. But righteous are, are all of your judgments. And I understand that to mean that all that God does in his providence is right. God is directing and governing all of his creatures, all of their actions, according to his own counsel and will for his own glory. And all that God ordains and all that he directs, he directs, he ordains and directs in righteousness. Men often complain, and don't we often find ourselves complaining of our circumstances. Don't we sometimes wish that our circumstances were different than they are? And yet it is the Christian's belief that all that occurs in our life, all of the, uh, the, the place that God has put us, the changes that we undergo in our life, all of these things come about because God in his providence has brought it out, brought it about for his glory, first of all, and for our good. He turns our circumstances, he ordains our, our, our lives in righteousness. The comfort that is, how, how important it is for us to recognize that the changes that occur in our lives, some of them are unpleasant for us to experience in the moment. And yet God in his providence is righteous in all that he does. C.H. Spurgeon said, God is always right. He is always right in his acts of providence, in his judgments. But the second place that we see uh, God's, um, God's righteousness is in Scripture. Verse here, verse 138. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. You have commanded your testimonies or appointed your testimonies in righteousness. So the attribute of righteousness shines forth in the revelation of God in his testimonies, in his word, in his law. His law mirrors and reveals, and it is the, out, it, it, it is, is, it is the very image of God himself. As God's actions are just and righteous, so it is true that all of God's words that he has spoken are just and right. 
Proverbs 8, 8 says, All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. So the word of God is absolutely pure and righteous. The Apostle Paul said, The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the psalmist confesses, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. There is no fault to be found in God's revelation of himself in his word. The Ten Commandments themselves express the whole of God's will And as one writer put it, they they are the lively image. That is, they are like God himself. They are righteous and faithful, requiring nothing impossible, nothing unsuitable, nothing but perfect love to God and man, which is our reasonable service to God. And this brings us back again to the thought that to meditate upon the words of God The righteous word of God is one of the ways in which God's righteous glory shines out upon us. He shines his face upon us in his word because it is perfect and pure and good and true. The third aspect of righteousness that I want us to notice is that God's righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And a couple times here in these verses, we notice that he says that God's righteousness is forever. Verse 142. Your righteousness is righteousness forever. And then farther down in verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. God's testimonies don't change. God's righteousness is not subject to the whims of fad or the changes that occur in the opinions of men. God's righteousness is here what is spoken of. There is no righteousness in man. In fact, the Bible says that. that No one is righteous. No, not one. Our only hope is for the unchanging righteousness of God. And yet, we find that that very unchanging righteousness of God is sometimes experienced by us, by mankind, as an insurmountable barrier. As an insurmountable barrier. As far as our own happiness is concerned, we... We think of the gravity of our sin. We think of God's righteousness. We think of God's uh, maintaining his righteousness with respect to us. We remember that God says that he will by no means clear the guilty. How often it is that we find ourselves twisting in guilt before the righteousness of God. 
that awful righteousness which is absolutely pure that causes us great pain and turmoil when we consider our standing before it. How can God, how can the Lord be gracious to me, I who swim in sin? If God is righteous, he must condemn me. We come and we wrestle with these thoughts. And if you've been a Christian, if you've been a Christian at all, and you've thought about these things, there have been times in your life when you just reach that point and you just wonder how you can get past it. How you can get past this obstacle that God is pure and righteous and I am unholy and I am a sinner. And it is the glory of God that in the gospel of God he announces to us the solution to this dilemma. It is the glory of the gospel that the righteousness of God is displayed primarily in Scripture in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul declares that it is the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and to which the law and the prophets bear witness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the re redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That God put Christ forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And Paul, in his argument in Romans, makes the point that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time that in the cross of Christ that the Lord God would be just and just the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so righteousness is magnified in the cross that God did not spare his only son but freely gave him unto us that he didn't spare his one and only son, but gave him to us, points to the fact of the magnification of the justice, of the righteousness of God, that his own son must suffer on the cross in order to uphold it. And we've seen then these three aspects that it is an everlasting righteousness, and a righteousness, and, and, and in case the, the connection wasn't clear, uh, to have everlasting righteousness is to have a righteousness that is given as a gift by the Lord God himself through Jesus Christ. It is the only righteousness that, for man that is everlasting. It is the righteousness of God given to us in Christ, in the gospel. And how precious that righteousness that becomes and I'm struck by the fact that the psalmist, when he asked to see the face of God, when he asked God to reveal himself, what, what trait of God then comes to his mind? It is the righteousness of God. What trait of God causes a guilty sinner more turmoil, more difficulty, 
more anguish of soul than the fact that God does not and cannot continue to be God and deviate one iota from his righteousness. And I'm struck by the fact that this trait of righteousness is the one that the psalmist comes to. And why it is that it is righteousness and the righteousness of God and his word that is of such great importance. And as we read the whole of the message of the Bible and of the gospel itself, I think it dawns on you that it is the revelation of the righteousness of God, both in his written word and in his incarnate word, that is the glory where the glory of God shines forth the most because it shines in the, in, in the death of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection and his victory over your sin and my sin. The sin that we anguish over. The sin that we struggle so to believe that God could be merciful to me. How could he be merciful to me and maintain his own righteousness? He does it in Christ Jesus, and he does it in the cross. So secondly, just briefly, certain things that the psalmist speaks about in response to this news, this meditation on the, on the glory of God revealed in his righteousness. First of all, zeal, zeal. He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. He lives in an ungodly society. There are many around him. And many of the advisors, of, if, this, if David is the author of this psalm, many of the advisors of David, no doubt, uh, had no regard for the word of God. And David was surrounded by many. And yet his allegiance to the word of God and the righteousness of that word and his, his, his uh, uh, loyalty to it caused problems uh, with those that were around him. And yet, he says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. What is zeal? J.C. Ryle has said, zeal is a burning desire to please God and to do his will and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. It is a, zeal is a desire that no man has by nature. It is a desire that only God puts in the heart of every believer when he's converted. Do you remember when you were first converted to Jesus Christ? The joy that you felt, the knowledge of sins forgiven, but also this burning zeal. The zeal that you had that to know that, that those around you would, would, would come to know the God that you had come to know, the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And, and, and this trait of zeal is something, it is a burning desire within us because we live in an ungodly world to see the glory of God uh, be honored and respected. Ryle continues and he says, a zealous man is a man of one thing. He sees only one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance his glory. Such a one is apt. Uh, and, uh, end of quote for Ryle. Such a person who is filled with zeal is apt 
to act and speak for the glory of God. I think that's true. I'm sure all of you could testify that you yourselves find that to be the case. You are moved to act and to speak for God. We also live in a world that disregards God. And many, uh, though they might profess a faith in God, don't live out of the basis, on the basis of that. So the Christian feels a zeal that consumes that others might know the Lord and have the same regard to him and his word that you yourselves know and have experienced in Christ Jesus. I think it's the zeal that, that uh, Jesus felt when, uh, he, uh, when he was in the temple and he made a whip of cords and he drove out of the temple the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins and their tables and he told those uh, who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is taken from Psalm 69:9. Zeal for your house will consume me. It is that trait that moved Christ to do the work that he did the cleansing of the temple, but in all throughout his life, a zeal to please the Father more and, uh, to the end, to the end of his earthly ministry. Second thing that we notice is that uh, not only was the psalmist responding with zeal, but the word reproach, the word reproach. He says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your testimonies. The psalmist says in verse 141 that he is small and despised. Uh, if we look again at Psalm 69, it will help us to understand this feeling of being despised. When a person is zealous for God above all else, there will be those times when you will become the object of ridicule, even among those uh, whom you may know and love. And, 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 and the psalmist expresses the fact that he himself felt himself to be small and despised in the eyes of others. This is the experience of the psalmist. It is the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be the experience of everyone who at some point or other gives testimony to their faith in Christ. They will confess, like the psalmist in, in, in 69, Psalm 69, I have become a stranger to my brothers. I have become an alien to my mother's sons, my own brothers and sisters related to in the flesh. I have become an alien to them. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Psalm 69, verses 8 through 10. So the willingness to bear reproach for the sake of the righteousness of God. Thirdly, delight. Another thing that we notice is that this, 
that the psalmist uh, expresses in verse 143 that though trouble and anguish have found me out, your commandments are my delight. The righteous commandments of God are his delight. One thing that the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of believers is he gives them a special delight in the things promised in the word of God and he gives them that special delight during those times in which, because of providential circumstances, the things of this world grow strangely dim. One of the ways that the Lord makes the world less appealing to us is to bring trials in the form of, many times, the destruction of our idols, the things we've looked to to provide for us our own, some sense of normalcy and happiness. Many times he totally destroys these things. He destroys our idols in which we've been trusting. We may look to our relationships, our possessions, our advancements to bring us a certain sense of fulfillment and joy. And then some great trial, perhaps an illness, perhaps a betrayal, perhaps a financial reversal comes and it breaks your world into pieces. The world that you once knew is shattered in your hopes and your dreams. And it is especially at these times of trouble and anguish. Trouble and anguish have found me out, the psalmist says. Trouble and anguish have searched and they found me. And I am in anguish. They have found me out. All those things then pertaining to this world, when that happens, begin to lose their luster and their shine. And we come to realize that we have been entirely too earthly-minded. And we've been driven by carnal and fleshly desires. And it is at these times that the promises of the Lord become especially important and precious to the believer. When the things that are invisible become more real. When the Lord's love promised to us and his steadfast and the purity and his faithfulness are trusted in. The commandments of the Lord then are our delight. The delight that the psalmist felt in the Lord and his righteous rules and in his holy scripture outweigh all of the sorrows and all of the grief. Something like what the Apostle Paul says when he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How is it that the things that are seen become transient in your eyes. A 
I'll tell you how. <laughs> Trial. Affliction. And it is during those times that the, that the psalmist says, Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments, all that is in them, all of the righteousness of the Lord that is revealed in them, all of the promises that he's given in the gospel, all of the covenant and the meaning of the covenant that I will be your God and you will be my people, the psalmist places his trust and we must place our trust you and I must also do this in the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus. When trouble and anguish find us out, the things of God, the things of his word, become more real and important to us than ever before. And the last thing I'd like to, for us to notice is in verse 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. That is a prayer. And that is the final response. It is a prayer. He continues to pray. As he did in the previous section, he now again prays, Lord, give me understanding. The meditation on the strength and the comfort that we've drawn from God's righteousness, revealed in providence, scripture, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, from the vantage point of the New Testament, the New Covenant, leads us finally to confess that we are utterly dependent upon God. We have no understanding of our own. We have no ability on, uh, of our own. We are utterly dependent upon God that he would give us the understanding that we need. And that the Lord would, in so doing, make us live. It is a wonderful thing to know that it is the power of the Spirit using his word that gives life. We live. When we live before the very face of God, we have come again full circle to see that the scriptures present to us this fact that preeminently righteousness is the revelation of the grace of God as we see that glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. The Apostle Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but it is Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine. Let light shine out of darkness and shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're led to seek the glory of God not only in Scripture but in the one whom Scripture presents to us that is the very face of Jesus Christ. 
And to see that is to be transformed by it. To see that and to, <coughs> and to have understanding is to, is to live. That's what it is to really live. It's not all the other cheap thrills. Not anything this world has to offer. It is to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word that gives us life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. How we confess, Lord, how darkened are our minds, how weak are our wills, how little we understand. Oh, Lord, give us understanding and give us light and give us light through Jesus Christ, whom you have appointed to be our Savior and our Mediator, would you do this, O Lord? Awaken us from the sleep of death and raise us from the dust of death to life in Christ. And may it begin even this day that we would live to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a hymn of response, we're going to sing together hymn number 149, Teach Me, O Lord, Your Way of Truth.